16. Of London cut also patched with Chinese blue, and a battered elsewood topi. I saw this through my field glasses, soon after, coming out from a cup in the winding pathway, emerged a four-man chair, and I had no doubt then that it was a European on the road, and I began to get as curious as anyone naturally would in a country where in interior travel his own foreign kind are met with but seldom, hurrying on, I managed to pass the chair in a place where overhanging foliage shut out the light, so that I could not see through the windows, and as the front curtain was down I concluded that it must be a lady, probably a missionary lady, I pushed on to the nearest tavern a tea tavern, of course buttoned up my coat so that she should not see my dirty shirt, and waited for the presence to approach, from an inner apartment, through a window, I could see all that went on outside, but could not be seen, what is it that makes a man's heart go pin a pat when he is about to meet a European lady in mid-China, presently the chair approached, from it came a person covered in a huge fur lined, fur collar and coat many sizes too large for his small body it was a Chinese, several men were pushed out of his way as he strode towards me, extending his hand in a cordial, shake, old fellow, style, and yelling in purest accent, good morning, sir, good morning, sir, oh, good morning, you speak English well, I congratulate you, have you had a good journey, how far are you going, very warm, I waited, it is so interesting when one meets a gentleman who can speak English, it is a pleasant change, I waited again, will you, good morning, morning, morn he, 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 but pardon me, will, morning, morning he, h-e-e, yes, you silly ass, I know it is morning, but, yes, yes, morning, morning he, he then made for the door, not the least abashed, later he came back, and invited me to speak Chinese, probably thinking that I was wondering why he had made such an absolute fool of himself. I learned that this august gentleman possessed a name in happy correspondence with a foul, Kai. He pointed contemptuously to a member of that feather tribe as he told me, whether he could speak Chinese when he was or was not at Chen Tiu, or whether he had a son whose knowledge of my language was vast, and who was at that moment at Chen Tiu. I could not quite fathom, and he could not explain. He had a look at my caravan generally, and then turned his scrutiny upon my common tweeds, informing me that the quality bore no comparison with his own. He could travel in a four-man chair, I had to walk. It was all very, hub-how. After some time he cleared out with much empty swagger, and I followed leisurely on behind, feeling yes, why not publish it? Pleased that this bolt from the blue had not been a lady. This young fellow a mere slip of a boy wore every indication of perfect self-confidence, borne out in a multitude of ways common to his class. He, I presumed, was one of the fledglings who undertake responsibilities far beyond them, or I should not be surprised if he had been one of the army of young men who, having the merest smattering of English, wholly unable to converse, set up as teachers of English. I have found this quite common among the rising classes in Yuanan. The cool assumption of a blushing superiority evinced in discussing intellectual and philosophic problems is remarkable. The Chinese, in the area I speak of, are little people with little brain, this was a specimen. Yet, to be fair, in China today the work of reform is mainly the work of young men, who although but only partly equipped for their work, approach it with perfect confidence and considerable energy, not knowing sufficient to realize the difficulties they are undertaking. In Japan the same thing was done, 
the young men there undertook to dispute and doubt everything which came in the way of national reorganization, setting aside as China must do if she is to take her place alongside the ideal she has set up for herself. Japan Parental Teaching, Ancestral Authority, The Customs of Centuries, A large proportion of the population of China has a passion for reform and progress. This young fellow was a typical example, in the west of China, however, to conform with the spirit of reform and real progress not the make-believe, which is satisfying them at the present moment they must needs change their ways. Seventeen memorial plates were passed at the entrance to Zhao Chao, a particularly modern-looking place, as one approaches it from the hill, a remarkably ungainly individual, with a hole in the top of his skull and his body one mass of sores, came to me here addressed me as Sien Seng, and then commenced an oration to the effect that he was a Sichuan's, that he had known the missionaries down by the Yangtze, and that he knew he would be welcome to accompany me to Xiaquan, and he switched himself on the main line of my caravan. Here was a man who had been brought in contact with the missionary away down in another province, and he knew he was welcome. I liked that. In all my journeyings in Yuanan I was increasingly impressed with the value of the missionary. That man who of all men in the Far East is the most subject to malicious criticism, and generally, be it said, from those persons who know little or nothing about his work, you cannot measure the missionary's work by conversions, by mere statistics. I venture to assert that it is through the missionary that the West applied pressure and supplied China with political ideas, and put within her reach the material and instruments which would enable her to carry such ideas into practice this apart from religious teaching. More particularly is this the case in respect to popular education, perhaps, by means of which the transformation of old China into new China will be a less long and difficult process. The people may not want the missionary I do not for a moment say that they do but they need to know the secret of his power and the power of his kind, and they must study his language, his science, his machinery, his steamboats, his army, his dreadnoughts. They realize that the foreigner is useful not for what he can do. But for what he can teach therefore they tolerate the missionary. This is virtually the national policy of China towards foreigners. A policy gaining the acceptance of the people with remarkable quickness. After having set aside all considerations of national prejudice and patriotism, it is interesting to ask whether it is actually a fact that the Chinese, as a race, are inferior to the peoples of the West. Much has been said on the subject. I give my opinion flatly that the Chinese is not inferior and the longer I live with him the more numerous become the lessons which he teaches me. The question, when we examine it closely, has really very little to do with political strength or military efficiency, or pace Mr. Benjamin had relative standards of living, or even the usual material accompaniments of what we call an advanced civilization, it is a question for the trained anthropologist and the craniologist rather than for the casual observer of men and manners. The Japanese people are now much more highly civilized according to Western notions than they were half a century ago. But it would be ludicrously erroneous to say that they are now a higher race, from the evolutionary point of view, than they were then. Evolution does not work quite so rapidly as that even in these days of Hessel. The Japanese have advanced, not because their brains have suddenly become larger, or their moral and intellectual capabilities have all at once made a leap forward but because their intercourse with Western nations, after centuries of isolated seclusion, showed them that certain characteristic features of European civilization would be of great use in strengthening and enriching their own country, 
developing its resources, and giving it the power to resist aggression. If the Japanese were as members of the Homo sapiens inferior to us 50 years ago, they are inferior to us now. If they are our equals today and the burden of proof certainly now rests on him who wishes to show that they are not our knowledge of the origin and history of Eastern peoples. Scandi though it island should certainly tend to assure us that the Chinese are our equals. 2. There is no valid reason for supposing that the Chinese people are ethnically inferior to the Japanese. They have preserved their isolated seclusion longer than the Japanese because until very recently it was less urgently necessary for them to come out of it. They have taken a longer time to appreciate the value of Western science and certain features of Western civilization, because new ideas take longer to permeate a very large country than a small one, and because China was rich within her own borders of all the necessaries of life. Oh and the West, too, must learn that the peace of Europe depends upon the integrity of China. For the time is coming not in the lives of any who read these lines, but coming inevitably when China will, by her might, by her immense numbers of trained men, by her developed naval and military strength, be able to say to the nations of the earth, there must be no more war, and she will be strong enough to be able to enforce it, as with individuals, so with nations, and a people who are marked by such rare physical vitality, such remarkable powers of endurance against great odds are surely designed for some nobler purpose than merely to bear with fortitude the ills of life and the misery of starvation. It is the easiest thing in the world to criticize the West criticizes the Chinese because he is a heathen, because they do not understand him. Hundreds of millions of the Chinese race hate and fear the man of the West for exactly the same reason as would cause us to hate the Chinese word or the situation reversed. I do not need to go into history from the days when the Chinese first began to show their suspicion contempt, and fear of foreigners, and their interpretation of the motives and purposes which took them to the celestial empire, it would take too much space. But if we of the West did our part today, as we rub up against the Chinese everywhere, in charitably taking him at his best, things would alter much more speedily than they are doing, because the Chinese bristles with contradictions and seemingly unanswerable conundrums. We immediately dubbed him a barbarian. Do not endeavor to understand him. Do not understand enough of his language to listen to him and learn his point of view. However, it is all slowly passing so very slowly, too. But still China is progressing. And now this oldest man in the world is becoming again the youngest, but has all the accumulations and advantages of age in all countries to lean upon and learn from. Zhao Chao gave me a very decent inn, the top room in front of which was provided with a well-paved courtyard with every convenience for the traveler that island for China. The in-cook and water carrier was out playing on the street when we put in an early appearance. My men lost their temper, ground their teeth, foamed at the mouth, and got desperate. The only man on the premises was a poor old fellow, who foolishly bumped his uncovered head on the ground on which I stood, as an act of great servility and a secret sign that I should throw him a few cash and then resumed his occupation in the sun of wiping his already inflamed eyes with the one unwashed garment which covered him. I petted him, he knew it, and traded upon my pity until I invoked a few choice words from Lao Chan to fall upon him. When the cook did put in an appearance, he and everybody dead and living placed anywhere near his genealogical tree underwent a rough quarter of an hour from the unmathematical tongues of my companions. The old man by virtue of the growth on my chin, this epithet of respect was commonly used towards me wanted to wash his face and drink his tea, 
He was tired with walking. He was a foreign Mandarin. Did the blank, blank, blank cook. The worder men no man. Not know that a foreigner was among them. And then they fell to piling up the ignominy again and placing to the cook's dishonor various degrees of lowliest origin common among the Chinese proletariat. Which, thank heaven, I did not quite understand. That evening all Zhao Chow came to honor me in my room. And to admire and ask to be given all I had in my boxes. That it was all a huge revelation to many who came and inquired who I might be, and whence I might have come, was quite evident. One fellow, dressed gaudily in expensive silks and satins probably borrowed came with pomp and pride, and disappointment was real large upon his ugly face when he learned that I could not, or would not, speak with him. He mentioned that he was one of the cultured of the city, but the Chinese are all more or less cultured. My own coolies, although not knowing a character, are really, cultured, they are the most polite men I have ever traveled with. The culture, at any rate, although more apparent than real, has a universality in China which the foreigner must observe in moving among the people, and which is a sort of lubrication, makes the wheels of society run smoother. This man was not cultured in the matter of taste in the choice of colors. He was altogether frightfully lacking in sense of harmony, and when one saw the little boy who trotted along with him, one might have thought that Joseph's coat had been revived for my especial edification. He was a peculiar being, this highly colored man. He would persist in sitting down on his haunches, despite frequent invitations to use a chair. How is it all Orientals can do this? And not one European out of fifty. Lao Chang afterwards informed me that this man's wife had just presented him with a second son, and great jubilation was taking place. The birth of a child, especially of a boy is a great event in any Chinese household, and considerable anxiety is felt lest demons should be lurking about the house and cause trouble. A sorcerer is called in just before the birth, to exorcise all evil influences from the house and secure peace. This is the exorcism of great peace. Simultaneously comes the midwife. Should the birth be attended with great pain and difficulty, recourse is had to crackers, the firing of guns or whatever similar device can be thought of to scare off the demons. Solicitude is often felt that the first visit to the house after the birth of the child should be made by a lucky person, for the child's whole future career may be blighted by meeting with an ill-starred person. No outsider will enter the room where the birth took place for 40 days. On the anniversary of a boy's birth the relatives and friends bring presents of clothes, hats, ornaments, playthings, and red eggs. The baby is placed on the floor of the earth, which is the first place he touches, he is born into a hole in the ground and around him are placed various articles, such as a book, pencil, chopsticks, money, and so on. He will follow the profession which has to do with the articles he first touches. Baby this was the fortieth day, and so my visitant honored me by thrusting his contemptible presence upon me, and he would not go until late at night. When a man with a diseased hip and one eye and a ghastly thing at that called to see whether I could treat him with medicine, Shaquan in days to come will probably have a big industry in brick and tile making. Fifteen li from the town, on the Jiao Chow side, many people now get their living at the business, and one could easily dream of a Shaquan Brick and Tile Company Limited, with the children's children of the present pioneers running for the morning papers to have a look at the share market reports with light railways connected up with the main line, which has not yet been built, and so on, and so on. Shaquan is perhaps the busiest town on the main trade route from Yuanmanfu to Burma, Tailifu, 
although growing, is only the official town, of which Shiaquan is the commercial entrepot. It was here that I stayed one Sunday some time after this, at one of the biggest inns I have ever been into in China. It had no less than four buildings, each with a paved rectangular courtyard which all the rooms overlooked. A military official, who was on his way to Jiaotong to deal with the rebellion, of which the reader has already learned a good deal, was expected soon after I arrived. My room was already arranged. However, when the landlord came to me and said, Yang Guan, you must please go out. Now the Yang Guan, as was expected, stayed where he was, smiled in magnanimous acquiescence, invited the proprietor a stout, jolly person with one eye to be seated, and remained quiet. Again and again was I told that I should be required to clear out, and give up the best room to the official and his aide-de-camp. But unfortunately the inquirer did not improve the situation by persisting in the foolish belief that the foreigner was hard of hearing. He shouted his request into my ear in a stentorian basso. He waved his hands. He pointed. He made signs. The Chinese language and manner, however, are difficult to an adulpated foreigner. I poor foolish fellow, endeavoring to treat the Chinese in a manner identical to that which he would have employed had conditions been reversed stared vacantly and woodenly into a seemingly bewildering infinite, and timidly remarked, Oting Poli, knowing then that my hearing had not come, he requisitioned my boy, for the aide-de-camp by this time was glumly peering into my doorway, but to his disgust Lao Chang also was equally unsuccessful in making me tumble to their meaning, the best room, therefore, continued to be mine, soon after the official came, and my dog began by mauling his canine guardian, tearing away half his ear, and in the middle of the night one of my horses got loose and had a stand-up fight with a mule attached to the official party, blaming him seriously, and as the foreigner emerged in his night attire to prevent further damage, he encountered the mandarin himself, and pinned him dead against the wall in the dark, after having stepped on his corn, my pony had pulled several morsels of flesh from the mule's carcass, the Yangguan certainly came off best, and the following morning, as the Chinese Guan with his retinue of six chairs and about 150 men departed, the Yang Guan smiled a happy farewell which was not effusively reciprocated. As I came out of the inn I met a Buddhist priest, worn with general dilapidation and old age, with a huge festering wound in the calf of his leg, so that he could hardly hobble along with a stick he was probably on his way to the medical missionary at Taylifu for treatment. This spiritual guide was certainly on his last legs and has probably by this time handed over the priestly robes and official perquisites to more vigorous young blood. Shaquan's high street reminded me of the main street of Chobneys, with its arch over the roadway, and the scenery might have deluded one into the belief that he was in Switzerland in spring, as he gazed upon the glorious spectacle of snow-covered mountains with the world-famed lake at the foot. Taylifu deserves its name of the Geneva of West China. In the chapter devoted to Yuan Manfu I have referred to the military of Taylifu, but here I saw the men actually at drill, and a finer set of men I have rarely seen in Europe. The military Tai lives here. Progress is phenomenal. At Yunshan, the westernmost prefecture of the empire, the commanding officer could even speak English. In the famous temple Tenli from Taylifu is an effigy to the Yang Baron who figured conspicuously during the Mohammedan rebellion. My men somehow got the false information that he was a native of Tong Shuanfu, so they all went down on their knees and bumped their heads on the ground before the image. This Yang, however, 
was such a brute of a man that no young girl was safe where he was, however, as a soldier he was indomitable. The temple in which he is deified is called the Quan In Tang. Ah and there is no place in all China where Quan In is worshipped with such relentless vigor. Some years ago, so the wags say, when Tai Fu was threatened by rebels, Quan In saved the city by transforming herself into a Herculean creature, and carrying upon her back a stone of several tons weight, presumably to blot the path. The amazement of the rebels at the sight of a woman performing such a feat made them wonder what the men could be like. So they turned tail and fled. The story is believed implicitly by the residents of the city, and the priests, with an open eye to the main chance, work upon the public imagination with capital tact. I saw the stone in the center of a lotus pond, over which is the structure in which the Quan In sits, not as a weightlifting woman, but as a tender mother, with a tiny babe in her arms, and none in the whole of the empire enjoy such favor for being able to direct the birth of male children into those families which give most money to the priests. Women desiring sons come and implore her by throwing cash, one by one, at the effigy, the one who hits being successful, going away with the belief that a son will be born to her. When the deluded females are cleared out, the priest, divesting himself of his shoes, and rolling up his trousers, goes into the water, scoops up the money and uses it for his personal convenience sometimes as much as 30,000 cash. Footnotes, footnote from Peking to Mandalay. By R. F. Johnston, London, John Murray, I am indebted to this racily written work for other ideas in this chapter, E.J.D. Footnote Ah, Temple to the Goddess of Mercy, Quan In was the third daughter of a king, beautiful and talented, and one young loved to meditate as a priest, her father, mother and sisters beseech her not to pass the green spring, but to marry, and the king offers the man of her choice the throne, but remember she must take the veil. She enters the White Sparrow Nunnery, and the nuns put her to the most menial offices, the dragons open a well for the young maidservant, and the wild beasts bring her wood, the king sends his troops to burn the nunnery, Quan in praise, rain falls, and extinguishes the conflagration, she is brought to the palace in chains, and the alternative of marriage or death is placed before her, in the room above where the court of the Inquisition is held there is music, dancing, and feasting. Sounds and sights to allure a young girl, the queen also urges her to leave the convent, and accede to the royal father's wish. Quan In declares that she would rather die than marry, so the fairy princess is strangled, and a tiger takes her body into the forest, she descends into hell, and hell becomes a paradise, with gardens of lilies. Kinyama is terrified when he sees the prison of the lost becoming an enchanted garden, and begs her to leave in order that the good and the evil may have their distinctive rewards. One of the genii gives her the peach of immortality. On her return to the terrestrial regions she hears that her father is sick, and sends him word that if he will dispatch a messenger to the fragrant mountain, an eye and a hand will be given him for medicine, this hand and eye are Quan In's own, and produce instant recovery. She is the patron goddess of mothers, and when we remember the value of sons, we can understand the hardiness of worship. The Three Religions of China, by H.G. Du Bois, Third Journey to Life to the Mekong Valley Chapter XX, Stages to the Mekong Valley, Hardest Part of the Walking Tour, Author as a Medical Man, Sunday Soliloquy, How Adversity is Met, Chinese Life Compared with Early European Ages, Women's Enthusiasm Over the European, A Good Send-Off, Michael Shanks, The Songster, Laughter for Tears, Pony Commits Suicide.
houses in the forest district, little encampments among the hills, and the way the people pass their time, treacherous travel, to Walimpu, rest by the river, and a description of my companions, how my men treated the telegraph, universal lack of privacy, complaints of the carrying coolies, from whichever standpoint you regard the cities and villages of western China, the views are full of interest, each forms a new picture of rock, river, wood and temple, crenellated wall, and uplifted roof, crowded with bewildering detail, I am not the first traveler who has remarked this, several of Mr. Archibald Little's books speak of it, he says, in Europe, except where the scenery is purely wild, and more especially in America, the delight of gazing on many of the most beautiful scenes is often alloyed by the crude newness of man's work, this is true now of Japan, since the rage for copying western architecture and dress has fallen upon the islands of the rising sun, but here in western China little has intervened to mar the accord between nature and man, in the country on which we are now entering the natural grandeur is finer than anything I had seen since I left the gorges, and incidentally I do not mind confessing to the indulgent reader that when I came again through Xiaquan, again westward bound, I was tired, my feet were blistered and broken, each day and every day had brought me a hard journey, and here I was now facing the most difficult journey yet met with literally not a leave level road, my journey was by the following route, length height of stage above sea first day Ho Chiangpu 90 li 5.050 feet second day Yangpai 60 li 5.150 feet third day Taipingpu 70 li 7.400 feet fifth day Wanlingpu 50 li 5.200 feet sixth day Chutun 95 li 5.250 feet seventh day Shayung 75 li 4.800 feet Taipingpu today is from Tailifu bleak and perched away up among the clouds, could never be called a town, it is merely a ramshackle place which gives one sleep and food in the difficult stage between Wanlingpu and Yangpai. Like most of the small places which suffered from the ravishings of the Mohammedan destructions of the fifties, it has seen better days. Cottages hang clumsily together on ledges in the mountains, 7.400 feet above the sea, standing in their own vast and cultivated grounds. People are of the Lola origin but all speak Chinese, their ways of life, however, are aboriginal, and still far from the ideal to which they aspire, they are poor, poor as church mice, dirty and diseased and decrepit, and their existence as a consequence is dreary and dull and void of all enlightenment, the women said, lowly females bind their feet after a fashion, but as they work in the fields, climb hills, and battle in negotiations against nature where she is overcome only with extreme effort, the real, lily, is a thing possible with them only in their dreams, by binding, however, be it never so bad in imitation, they give themselves the greater chance of getting a Chinese husband, I stayed here the Sunday, and as I went through my evening ablutions, among my admirers in the doorway was an old woman, who in gentlest confidences with my boy, explained awkwardly that her little daughter lay sick of a fever, and could he prevail upon his foreign master, in whom she placed implicit faith, to come with her and minister, Lao Chang advised that I should go, and I went, my shins got mutilated as I fell down the slippery stone steps in the dark into a pail of hog's wash at the bottom, having wiped the worst of the grease and slime onto the mud wall, by the aid of a flickering rushlight I saw the child, who lay on a mattress on the floor in the darkest corner of the room, I reckoned her age to be thirty-five, her black hair hung in tangled masses, 
the very bed on which she lay stank with vermin. Two feet away was the fire where all the cooking was gone through, and everywhere around was filth. When she saw me the child raised her solitary garment, whispered that pains in her stomach were well nigh unendurable, that her head ached, that her joints were stiff, that she was generally wrong, and did I think she would recover? I thought she might not. Rushing back to my medicine chest, I brought along and administered a maximum dose of the oil called castor, and later dosed her with quinine. In the morning she was out and about her work, while the old mother was great in her praises for the passing European who had cured her child. After that came the deluge. They wanted more medicine fever elixir, to take cure, and so on, and so on but I stood firm. The tedium of the Sunday in that drafty inn gave me an insight into their common lives which I had not before, causing me to meditate upon their simple lives and their simple needs. They did not raise the forests in order to get gold, they did not squander their patrimony in youth, destroying in a day the fruit of long years. They held to simple needs, they had a simplicity of taste, which was also a peculiar source of independence and safety. The more simple they lived the more secure their future because they were less at the mercy of surprises and reverses. In adversity these people would not act like nurslings deprived of their bottles and their rattles, but would, by virtue of their common simplicity, probably be better armed for any struggles. I do not desire the life for myself, but the ethics of their simple living cannot but be recommended. Multitudes possess in China what multitudes in the West pursue amid characteristic hampering futilities of European life. We would aspire to simple living and the simplicity of olden times in manners. Art and ideas is still cherished and reverenced, but we cannot be simple or return to the simplicity of our forefathers unless we return to the spirit which animated them. They possessed the spirit of real simplicity, and this same spirit the Chinese possess today, but they are minus the incomparable features of healthful civilization, inward and outward, of which our forebears were masters. Our ways today are not their ways, and their ways not our ways, but one cannot but realize as he moves among them that with a happy infusion of the spirit of their simplicity into the restlessness of our modern life our wearied minds would dream less and realize more of the true simplicity of simple living. To a man the village of Taiping Pu turned out early on the Monday morning to express regrets that my departure was at hand, when, in parting with this people who had done all in their power to make my comfort complete, I threw a handful of cash to some little children standing wonderingly nearby. General approval was expressed, and elaborate felicities and at my beneficence exchanged by the earringed older women. A short apron hung down over their blue trousers, and as I pass,